everybody to another episode of the Dead Funny Dead Serious Podcast. I'm your host, Casey Morozik, and today our special guest is Reed Collier. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, we, we appreciate you taking your time to uh, come out and uh, discuss death and your experiences with it and just something we all, we all deal with, you know? So first off, let's uh, hear a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Uh, your background, just uh, what made you open to coming on our podcast? Uh, so I'm from a very small town in central Florida called uh, Donawan. Nobody's heard of it. Um, literally, I'm from Glen Ellen, which sounds very similar. So I'm going to say you're pretty much neighbors. Probably. She's from Illinois. So neighbors. Neighbors. Yeah. Neighbors. Okay. Um. And what's a few thousand miles between friends. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so it was literally a one stoplight town when I grew up there. And I was raised by a single mom. Parents were divorced. Got to see my dad about two or three times a year. Um, my mom, very religious. My dad, not so much. And uh, that that's pretty much it. I mean, I, I've always studied in school and tried to do well, joined the military, and here I am. You said your mom was highly religious. Where does that leave you? Because if, if you're, you were with your mom more often than your father, you, you stated. Mm-hmm. So where does that leave you in terms of like your religious outlook? Well, I feel like all kids try to rebel against their parents. <laughs> and I guess probably uh, one of my rebelling tendencies was to sort of reject my faith um and it it wasn't just that that makes me have a lack of faith today but going on with it it, my my faith kind of dissolved over time and then after I was done with the whole counterculture thing of lack of faith and like being almost an evangelical atheist I sort of middled out and now I'm more agnostic um but I'm not uh I'm definitely not religious and I'm definitely not an evangelical atheist where I believe that nobody should be religious I just believe religion is for some people and for some other people it's not for them and I'm one of the people that it's not for how does that feed into your your beliefs on on death on how you approach dying and how you perceive uh, afterlife? Mainly I believe that probably after you die it's exactly the same as before you were born and there's just nothing. Our, Our time here is the only time that we have and my belief that that is the way the universe is makes life infinitely more valuable. So do you believe in like the you don't believe in the reincarnation but that like there was nothing before and nothing after or in the Einsteinian theory that there's like everything is basically like 
electricity and it doesn't really it's not created or destroyed it's just changed pretty much our entire experience in life is just biochemistry it's electricity and chemicals in the brain and when those signals in the brain stop so does your life so it's just very linear it's exactly a, it, a, a it, point and an end and basically the life is what you do in the in the dash between as they say exactly you you come into this world and then you go out of it so how does your opinion uh vary from or or is it similar to your your families your mothers your fathers outlook on on death I believe my dad is a little bit more spiritual than I am, and my mom is definitely very religious, believes in an afterlife and, you know, milk and honey for all of eternity. For for me, I, I don't really discuss death a lot with my family. I just know that my dad has had some spiritual experiences. Have you had any spiritual experiences? Uh, you Before the episode, we were talking, and you had said that you had had a few run-ins with death if you'd like we'd love to hear your experiences with that there was nothing spiritual involved with it i have had one supernatural experience that i don't know if you want to get into absolutely um the supernatural experience has absolutely nothing well i guess ghosts but that it's only tangibly related to death um or intangible depending on how you you look at it yeah uh so i was touring the overlook hotel which you might recognize from uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining or oh, right. the book by the same name by Stephen King um, it's out in Rhode Island isn't it Colorado I thought in the movie it was based out of Colorado but all of it oh no all of his stuff in his books are in like main area Rhode Island but like that's one of the few offshoots if I'm not mistaken I believe so but yeah it, it's the Overlook Hotel and uh I went on the ghost tour and everything, and there were a few things that I couldn't explain. Uh, like, I felt a cold gust of wind go over my hand, and apparently that's supposed to be a celestial body moving through you. Um, or a little vent hose that they place in there to scare people. Exactly. <laughs> and so I uh, I went through the entire tour, didn't really believe in it. Like, some people had caught some weird blurs on their camera, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean anything to me. And then... I went off by myself into the ballroom, and I swear I heard music coming from the ballroom, which could be explained by speakers, but when I opened the door, the music stopped, and I went into the ballroom, and the ballroom had probably about 30 chandeliers across the roof, like 10 rows of three, and the chandelier closest to me, where the door was after I stepped in, picked itself up and dropped on its own chain. It didn't fall, but it just went up, went down. And I tried to get my dad over to look, and by the time he got over there, it was just barely moving. But it was still the only chandelier moving. I just wanted someone else to confirm that I wasn't hallucinating. And I don't know how to explain that. Uh, But I don't know if you can. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, magnets might be some intern that they have hiding in the attic with fishing wire pulling it up or uh, I mean it's 
there, there's always ways to explain it, but depending on your beliefs and like, I personally have had a number of run-ins with ghosts. I don't like a lot of people would say they're probably right after I woke up. So it's probably just a dream or whatever, but I don't know. I don't discount it. Yeah. I, I, I don't know own. what to believe, but I haven't had a supernatural experience before or after. So, Did you go in hoping to disprove it, or did you go in hoping to see something? I went in hoping to see something, because when you're on a ghost tour, you want to see a ghost. So, um, in your belief, do you think that played into it? It might have. It might have made me subconsciously more suggestible to anything that happened, but I don't think it did because, like I said, the uh, the cold air, the pictures, and then they had a door that no matter how hard you tried to slam it, it wouldn't latch. But if you just pushed it closed gently, it would latch. But all of that, I dismissed. I'm like, oh, well, like, the door's just weird. Like, that's just the way the door is. Probably the door frame shifted. Something happened. Um, or the but, latch is, like, sticky, so it only works when you, like, give it enough time to, like, kind of slowly move back in or something like that. Yeah. So, I, I dismissed all of that, so I don't see why I wouldn't dismiss the last thing of the chandelier dropping. Honestly, that that one's a lot harder to explain. You'd actually have to, as a hotel saying, I have a, a, a haunting, like this is a haunted place, I could see having like a door that is weird or wonky and not really digging into it, have it be a focal point. But like a chandelier going up and down, like you are straight up having to defraud people at that point. Yes. And I feel like in a hotel that's that known you would be really hard pressed to just go out of your way to defraud somebody at that level without people coming in and digging deeper absolutely so that makes me think or give a little bit more credibility to me yeah i mean it it's definitely harder to explain but there there can be a rational explanation for it i just don't know what it is Going off the assumption that you did see a ghost, mm -hmm. right? You believe that life is linear, or life and death are linear stopping points. How would those two ideas come together for you? That a, what would be a ghost then at that point? Well, something I learned on the ghost tour was that almost. I, I can't remember the exact statistic, but they said a majority of hauntings in the United States take place on top of limestone deposits. So maybe there's a scientific correlation, we just don't have the tools to study the correlation between limestone and quote-unquote spirits, but maybe limestone is just a physically abnormal uh, material that causes weird things to happen to physics or maybe that's kind of like one of those draws of once again we'll jump back to einstein's theory that like deja vu i'm pretty sure it's einstein uh 
deja vu is basically like time loops. So time to him wasn't a straight line. It was essentially like an infinite figure eight, if you will. And when you hit that middle intersection of that eight, two time periods essentially overlap. And it's in that overlapping space where you see deja vu. And maybe limestone attracts those deja vu-ish moments where you're kind of seeing two time periods lap on each other. That is definitely a possibility. I think we just broke physics. <laughs> on this show, you heard it first. It's documented. So if you love us and want to help us in our goal to make death a normal conversation and to help to keep us up and running, consider donating to us on Patreon. We love you all no matter what you choose to do. Now let's get back to the show. Well, growing up, what was it like uh, in terms of discussing death? Did you did you guys talk about it? Did you uh, was it kind of like a closed behind doors thing, like the hush taboo secrets? Uh, I would love to hear what your your home life's outlook on all of it was. The church that I went to was. I, I'm not sure if this was unorthodox because it's one of my few interactions with a religion. But the church that I went to as a child, they celebrated death because it was somebody passing to heaven or somebody who deserved eternal punishment going to hell, um, which isn't really a thing to celebrate in my opinion, but the church did it anyway. Um, so it seems kind of vindictive. A little bit. Um, so it, it seemed like it was more of a, uh, a celebration. And I think that's one of the few good things that religion taught me because I still view death as a cause to celebrate no longer passing to heaven but to celebrate that person's time here on earth and all of the good that they've done so have you looked at your own life and, and how you want your final days to to look like and have you looked at what your funeral would look like or any of that aspect of your end of days I have um, I've thought about it I haven't put together any solid funeral plans, but I have uh, told people close to me, my next of kin, um, my girlfriend, and uh, I've communicated to them that I would like to have a celebration of my life, my accomplishments, but most importantly, the impact that I've had on other people's lives. Um, I, I was part of a big vaccination campaign in uh, late high school, early college. Um, and raised a lot of money to save a lot of lives uh, from maternal and neonatal tetanus. And uh, I've built houses for Habitat for Humanity. I've, I've done a lot of community service, so I like to think that I've had a positive impact on more than just my close circle of friends. That's uh, really interesting. I've known you for a couple of years, didn't know any of that. So you keep yourself quite humble I, I would say I, I don't advertise it but I don't hide it so when you think of a good death what's the first thing that comes to mind a good death would probably be a uh, life well lived or dying doing something that you greatly enjoy uh, a story that comes to mind is Tommy Cooper he was a British comedian I believe in the 70s or 80s and there 
you can actually look up a video of his final performance. Um, and in this video, he, he was a very slapstick comedian, he used a lot of physical humor. And he was in the middle of doing a comedy routine in Andrew Lloyd Hall, I believe, um, and had a heart attack towards the end of his performance. Well, it became the end. And he clutched his chest and fell on the ground, and he got a standing ovation from the crowd. Nobody knew that he was actually dying. They thought it was part of his act. And the curtains closed, and the paramedics rushed on, and he was already dead. There was no time to save him. So he died doing not only what he loved, bringing joy to other people. He died while doing it, and his death itself brought joy to the crowd. So, I mean, that, that sounds like a, like a perfect death. So to you, what would that be? I guess dying to save someone else's life. That, that would absolutely be sort of the perfect death for me if, if one of my loved ones needed a new heart or something and I was able to be a living donor if there was no other donor found. Wow, that's, that's a powerful way to go. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm an organ donor anyway, so hopefully when I die, they'll be able to use something if I stop drinking these mocha frappuccinos. <laughs> but they're so tasty. They are. Get that diabetes. So who in your family are you most comfortable talking about death with and, and why? Probably my dad. He's uh, he's the most open-minded. Um he just seems to be uh, very nonchalant um, with his views, very open with his views. And uh, it, he never makes me feel judged for any unorthodox views that I might have. If you could know when and where you're going to die, would you want to know? 100%. I mean, this... That, that kind of makes sense going back to what your perfect death is sitting there being able to give up your organs like that sounds like it'd be right up your alley yeah and knowing if I'm going to be you know if I'm going to die in a way that my organs won't be able to be used then I would like to figure out like oh I'm go I know that I'm going to die July 22nd of 2054 so, July 21st, it's time to, uh... <laughs> just, just really go hard in the paint. Yeah. Like, you can really kill your liver that day, shoot up a little bit, why not? Go crazy. All the things you've always wanted to do. Exactly. No, but, uh, you know, just walk into a hospital and be like, hey, I know I sound crazy, but I'm probably going to be dying tomorrow, so get ready to have those organs. <laughs> we often talk about our like our death teachers so things that we have that have taught us about death things that we learned along the way and I'm curious what experiences have you learned from uh, like any death teachers and who or what were those death teachers that really kind of helped sculpt your your thoughts about death and dying and the pre and afterlife, all that. My great-grandmother, 
she passed when I was, I believe, 11 or 12. Um, so that was my first experience with a person that I knew dying. And uh, it, it had, I think, a pretty positive impact on me because I, I saw my family come together. And I, I didn't think that I had a big family until everybody was there mourning her loss. But then it, it was a really good experience because my family had decided that instead of holding a funeral, that we would hold a celebration of life. And there were videos of all of the things that she had done in her life, pictures. Uh, people would just come up to the podium and tell stories. And they weren't sad stories about how they were so sad that she's gone. They were all happy stories. They were the best memories that everybody had of her. And I think that that was a really good learning experience because it basically showed me that if you live a life well lived, there's going to be people who remember you and hold you fondly in their heart. Legacy. Exactly. I mean, everything that you've told me about yourself is all about leaving behind a great legacy mm -hmm. and learning about the legacy of others. And I think that's such a, a brilliant and beautiful thought to like to approach death with is like that it's not about losing someone but it's about revering their their legacy that they're leaving behind so is there anything that you would like to ask me or anything that you have questions about regarding uh options like i've done a ton of research on f funerals and all of your death options and all that stuff and I found, especially with the younger people I interview, that they have a lot of questions. That like they didn't have a lot of people talking to them about ex about what to expect, about things that they should be thinking about. And so I always like to open up uh, any sort of discussion about things that might be on your mind. Well, when when I do eventually die, I obviously I don't believe there's anything after this, so. Whether my wishes were honored or not, I'm not going to know, I'm not going to care, because I'll be dead. But I I sort of had this idea where I just want to, and maybe it's a contrarian in me, that same 13-year-old evangelical atheist, but it's, uh, I just want to almost turn the funeral industry on its head and just, like, make my funeral almost a roast. It's like, have my embalmed corpse up there on a throne, wearing a crown. And like a flavor flave clock and just flavor oh flave. <laughs> you know, just go absolutely ridiculous with it. Make it so absurd that nobody will be able to cry at my funeral. Now do you think that's fair to your family to almost not allow them to grieve? From what I've seen, people will choose to grieve in their own way anyway. The funeral is definitely a good venue for grieving together and knowing that you're not alone in your grieving, but I'm sure that there will be some kind of before or after event because people probably wouldn't like what I have planned for my funeral. So they're going to organize their own thing. So my real question is with the social media going around and everybody having a phone in their or a, a camera in their, their pockets, the 
amount of weird faces for laugh crying at your funeral would break the internet. Don't you think? I mean, it might. <laughs> <laughs> Just like the bubbles of snot, the like kind of half tear, half half smile, like gut wrenching laugh. Like you've seen those laughs. Yeah, one hundred percent. You know it's gonna break the internet. Yeah. So are you gonna basically like have people sign a a disclaimer before you come in? <laughs> like you're about to see a dead body on a Shit's throne. about to get real. Yeah. And you need to leave your phone at the door. <laughs> no, um, like another idea I had was almost like do a jack in the box where like my my body just gets launched out of the coffin. Oh my goodness. Um, so so we're looking at at a coffin then. We're not looking at cremation, aquamation. Well, and in all actuality, it'd probably be, you know, all of my organs scooped out, and then maybe my body donated to science. Some med student can figure out how to dissect a cadaver. Well, so even after that, they still they dis- they use the body, they dissect the body, all that stuff, and use it as far as you can. Uh, I will take a quick sidebar so I don't forget. But if that's something you want to do where you donate your body to science, it's actually a pretty intensive process. And you want to start that process way before you die. Good because, to know. Like, yeah, it, it, you have to be uh, in certain health benefits or health sections. And you have to, like, have, like, your health history to them. And they, they want to know all this stuff, like any diseases you have, any of that stuff. Like, what your, like, blood counts were, all that stuff like kind of plays into whether or not you are viable for them. Okay. So it's something you don't want to do, like just write down on your will of, I want to be donated to science. You actually have to like actively pursue that while you're alive. That's good to know. So just Um, a heads up on that guy. Have you heard anything on from other guests on your podcast that have people said that they wanted a comedic funeral or am I the first? No, it's, it's very, common uh not necessarily from people that have been on my podcast so far but just in talking to people it, it's very common that people for whatever their reasons are more often than not I, I think it's they don't want to they don't want their families to feel sad and grieve but as we've already discussed and as you pointed out they're gonna grieve in their own way they're still gonna grieve so people trying to have a funny funeral for that reason it's not actually going to happen it like they're still going to feel the pain you're still going to be gone they're mm-hmm. still going to deal with that in whatever way they deal but no everybody has their own little take on a funny funeral yeah and i know me and mitzi which you spoke to right before the podcast like we used to say the same thing like we're going to have like a dance party and we're gonna like because that's who we were living so it makes sense to do that when we're dead the more we've talked about it and the more like she's also a certified thanatologist which is basically an expert in the study of death and dying and she is coming around and or not coming around she's teaching me more that like the grieving process not like basically like us holding it in is actually really, really, really detrimental to us. Huh. So she actually has this this 
theory that she picked up from uh, studies that were shown with animals, like when they got hit by a car, mm-hmm. they shake, like their, their central nervous system like shakes. And they found that when people came over and tried to comfort them and be like, no, 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 sh- sh- don't shake, don't shake, and tried to stop them from shaking, the animal actually, like it shortened their life and they died more often than if somebody just left them alone, let them shake until their body was done and like dealt with that trauma. And those animals tended to live longer and like be healthier and recover. So her theory is that grief is the same way. We need to allow ourselves to, as she says, shake it out. So what does shaking it out look like? Is that bawling? Is it screaming? Is it crying? Is it laughing? It, it's different for every person, but us trying to stop that from happening actually is causing trauma. And that's kind of what our funerals industry is doing uh, just because we're not dealing with the deaths. Like somebody dies, you call somebody, they come take the body away. Next time you see them, they're in makeup, they're in a suit, they look almost alive. Mm -hmm. And you have an hour or two to say goodbye. In a room that you don't know, around a bunch of people where you're not necessarily comfortable. And like, you're just put into all these like quick, uncomfortable situations to say your quick goodbyes to somebody who doesn't look like they're dead. And it's a theory that that's actually causing a lot of trauma that we're not able to get over. Interesting. I mean, I definitely wouldn't want to leave anybody with trauma. So maybe I'll have to rethink my funeral plans. It's all family and person specific. Like, you're not going to be able to stop trauma from everyone. That's just the way of it. And it's it's something you just need to have that discussion with the ones that are most important to you. And I think that's really what this whole show is about, is about opening up that discussion, giving people that that window to say, yes, this is what I want. And they can say, well, this is more where we align and whatever, but ultimately it's about what you want. And they can give their two cents and what have you, but what's going to make you happy knowing how you left it? Absolutely. And I think opening up the discussion and those lines of communication get everybody on the same page so there's no more guesswork. Like if you... Even if you talk about it, you should have it written down. And you should have it written down in multiple places that's accessible. You should give your advanced directives, which is basically like if you get in a car accident and you're a vegetable. How, how, what lengths do you want them to go to to save you or keep you alive? When to pull the plug? You can have all that written out and give it to your lawyer, give it to the doctor give it to multiple loved ones and keep it by your will. Everybody knows about the will, even though people don't do them. We do because we're in the military and last minute 
or like if you're going on a deployment, you have to. Absolutely. But the average person I found doesn't. And if they do, they're not updating it until like for 15, 20 years. My parents just did theirs or redid theirs. Their will, I'm 34 and their will had what is going to happen to me and who's going to take care of me if they die. Like it was over 20 years old. Lots changed in 20 years. Absolutely, yeah. And there's probably other financial problems with the will, too, where they have new assets that are now not covered by the will, and then the federal government's going to swoop in and just be like, oh, that's ours now. It wasn't left to anybody. With assets, I think it's usually like a blanket thing. It'll go to the next of kin, unless they can't be reached. Uh, then the next, and basically after they've done their due diligence of trying to find who the next of kin is, then the government could essentially take over. I don't think it's going to be just like, oh, we don't, it didn't specifically state, but it only has like half of their stuff going to this person. The rest of it's the government's. I don't think that's how it plays (laughs) out, but I see what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, Let's leave it on uh, this final final little uh, note. If you had a, a book or a quote or a song about death that, like, gives you hope or makes you feel a certain way, like, what would that be and, and why? So, uh, I, I read a book that was pretty impactful to me as a middle schooler. Um, it was called Flowers for Algernon. And uh, spoilers for anybody listening who wants to read the book later. Oh, the book's been around for a long time, so you've you've lost your choice. Your, your chance to yell at him for a spoiler, by the way. <laughs> so the book is about a man who's born mentally handicapped and gets an experimental procedure that makes him not only intelligent, but hyper-intelligent. And this experimental procedure was done also on a mouse, which the man then named Algernon. Um, and the mouse ends up losing its intelligence slowly over time, and it ends up completely dying um, from the procedure and this guy then has to come to terms with not only the loss of everything that he started to experience for the first time in his life but also he has to come to the terms with losing his life after he's lost all of this intelligence that has been granted to him and it's it was just such a horrifying thought. Like, you're starting at lower mental faculties, and you go up to higher mental faculties, and then knowing that you're going to go back down to where you were before, and then after that, you're going to die. But when you drop down back to the lower level, you don't know that you're going to die still, because you're not intelligent enough to process the concept of death anymore. And how terrifying is that thought, that reality, that we can lose enough of our mental acuity to no longer be aware of the concept of death, and therefore no longer value life. So do you see it as a blessing or a curse to lose that fear and understanding that you're going to die. It's a little bit of both. I mean, it it's obviously a curse because in in the book at least, the it's written as a journal. 
and in the book, um, he knows that something is different about him, but he doesn't know what. And he, he feels like he's still smart, but he knows that he's not. And he just doesn't understand the same concepts that he already knew the same way anymore. And so it, it's a blessing in that he, he can't understand it and therefore can't feel pain from it. But it's a curse in that he is aware of what he had before. So is it kind of a, the way I'm understanding it, it's a play on the, is it better to have loved and lost and, or never to have loved at all kind of a thing? Like, is it, if you were never given the foresight of, or or the ability to process things a certain way, you wouldn't know what you are missing out on. But because he was given it to, given that ability, and then he lost it, he a part of him was then gone. 100%. And yeah. and that's where the, the true agony of that book is coming from. So he almost would have been better off if they had never given him intelligence in the first place. 100%, yeah. And um, the book answers that much the same way in a resounding no, saying uh, that the after him, the... Uh, the medical trials were stopped and no longer continued for any human test subjects. Um, so that this this pain of knowing that you're going to lose your mental faculties wasn't inflicted on anybody else. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. We loved having you. Thank and, you for uh, having me. Yeah, well, hopefully we'll... Uh, get you back on yeah i'd love to do another episode anytime appreciate it